You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, Hangman Strain, John, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Vanderwood, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Keelhaw Chris, Carcos, Sean, Rotary Coast, MD, Ghost 750X, Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madam Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstrap Spale. I'd also, I'd also like to welcome our new quartermasters, Evan, Brandon, The Gecko, Nathan, and Kevin, as well as our newest Commodores, and the Snarlin' Sea Dog. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. We need to begin today with a brief discussion of the sources that we're going to be using. Most of the books from which I'm pulling this story are old. There are, naturally, a few more modern sources thrown in there, like Pirates in Their Own Words by E.T. Fox or Pirates of the Americas by David Marley, but those sources have really just a few snippets of information, nowhere near what you would call a full story. Because the story here, the biography of the pirates that we're going to talk about, it's a murky one. The main sources from which we'll be working are The Pirate's Own Book from 1837, The Pirate's Who's Who from 1924, Under the Black Flag from 1925, the History of Piracy from 1932, Pirates of the Eastern Seas from 1933, and The Way of the Pirate, or Who's Who in Davy Jones' Locker, from 1941. More modern authors talk about this stuff, but they're forced to do the same thing I am. They all have to say something along the lines of, These authors claim that. Because 
there's very little hard evidence about any of this, and all of those sources we just named were written with A General History of the Pirates, Volume 2, open in the author's lap. You remember A General History of the Pirates, Volume 2. It's an interesting book, but very different from Volume 1. The author was almost certainly not the same person, even though both are credited to Captain Charles Johnson. And it talks about a lot of pirates that weren't in the first volume. Thomas II Steed Bonnet's in there. But it also talks about pirates like James Misson, who was not a real person. It's the source of the idea of, and at least the first popular source for the name of Libertalia. In a very real way, the pirates we're going to talk about today are a continuation of the tale of James Misson and Libertalia. Although these pirates were real people, just most of the details we have are questionable. So maybe it would be best to consider what we're going to be talking about for the next few episodes an examination of pirate literature from the early 18th century. Or if all you're after here is a fun pirate yarn, well, this one certainly delivers. This is episode 318. The Companions of His Dangers. Before we get to this new batch of pirates at Libertalia, there are a few loose ends we need to tie up regarding the pirates at Madagascar. In 1696, Adam Baldridge left his trading post at St. Mary's Island to head to New York on some business, and he was never to return to St. Mary's because there was an uprising of the local Malagasy who killed a bunch of pirates. A bunch of pirates, though, continued to occupy St. Mary's Island and St. Augustine Bay, down to the southwest. And then in 1699, you'll remember that Commodore Thomas Warren delivered the Act of Grace to the pirates of St. Mary's. Now, the Act of Grace was from 1698, and technically it was expired at this point, but Thomas Warren offered it to them nonetheless, said it would be accepted, and a bunch of pirates there accepted the king's pardon. Pirates like Dirk Chivers, Samuel Burgess, and Robert Culliford. A bunch of these pirates arranged passage back to America on board the Margaret under Captain Giles Shelley, and most of those pirates disappeared into the American world. A few would reappear upon the pages of history when war broke out again, but most never did. Some pirates, though, chose to stay at St. Mary's Island. And Thomas Warren told them that, you know, no one's stopping you from living here if that's what you want to do. But if you continue to engage in piracy, we know where you are and we will come get you. All of these pirates knuckled their foreheads or tipped their cap but of course they were going to continue engaging in piracy. There was another man running the trading post there named Edward Welch, who would trade primarily in pirated goods. Now, Welch's trading operation was never as successful as that of Adam Baldridge, mainly because Welch was not trading in slaves. The Malagasy had put an end to that nonsense. But that also means that Welch attracted far less notice than Adam Baldridge had. You know, a few silks or calicos here and there is nothing compared to the absolutely gobsmacking amount of money made from illegally traded slaves. 
But a few of the pirates, two in particular, who accepted the act of grace from Commodore Warren, they were arrested anyway. Namely, Samuel Burgess and Robert Culliford. Culliford was arrested first and tossed into Marshalsea Prison to await trial. First, the Admiralty had to deal with Captain Kidd, and then they would turn their attention to Culliford. But then, the East India Company arrested Samuel Burgess on suspicion of piracy. Now, Burgess had been a pirate, but he did have that act of grace. And so far as we know, he had not committed any acts of piracy since then. But of course, that act of grace was technically expired, so this is a murky legal area. Politically, though, things are a lot more clear. The English government had been under a lot of pressure from the Mughal, Aurangzeb, after Henry Every's capture of the Ganji Sawai. They tried really hard to find Henry Every, but never managed to do so. Instead, they arrested and then executed Captain Kidd, and that act seems to have alleviated a lot of the pressure from the Mughal on the crown. But the East India Company was still under a lot of pressure from the Mughal. They were an organization distinct from the crown, and of course they were actually in India. And it was clear they had taken no part in the arrest or capture of Captain Kidd, who had been taken back in America. It looked to the Mughal like the East India Company were just letting pirates roam free in Indian waters. And why is that, do you think? Maybe they wanted the pirates there, hmm? The company needed to make a big show of their anti-piracy stance if they were to remain on good terms with the Mughal. So they arrested Samuel Burgess, which was a show of good faith. Relations between the Mughal and the company weren't exactly friendly, but a lot of that pressure had been alleviated. But then Samuel Burgess brought a suit against the East India Company. You know, he had a pardon. He had engaged in no piracy since he received it. Legally speaking, he should not be in jail right now. But if Burgess were allowed to walk free, both the company and the crown would be in hot water with the Mughal Empire. Maybe they would even be expelled from India entirely. So they put him on trial, and this was going to be a jury trial. They couldn't just toss him in a deep, dark dungeon and forget about him. There was a possibility he could walk free if they failed to prove he had done anything wrong. And Burgess provided a pretty solid defense. The pardon may have been expired, but Commodore Thomas Warren, a ranking man in the Royal Navy, he told us it was still legitimate. So are you calling Commodore Thomas Warren a liar? Or maybe you're admitting that it was the crown that was playing us false. Is that what your honors are saying? That the king is a liar? This made a bunch of bewigged men in black robes very uncomfortable. Because, as far as I can tell, Burgess was right. But those men hatched a plan. They came back to the court and said that yes, the pardon was absolutely legitimate. The king and Commodore Warren were telling the truth. All of the piracy before you accepted that was washed away, and we're going to prove it. 
because we've brought in another man who accepted the pardon, and he has some interesting tales to tell. Robert Culliford was called to the bench. He told the court that Samuel Burgess had been engaged in piracy after accepting the act of grace. And, you know, maybe he's telling the truth here, but if he was, we don't have any record of Burgess having taken those ships. It looks very much like the prosecution had cut a deal with Robert Culliford. Kidd had served as their uh, sacrificial lamb. Thanks to having hanged him, they no longer needed to hang Culliford. They could, but they didn't have to. If Culliford agreed to testify against Burgess, bear false witness as it were, Culliford could go free. Whether he was telling the truth or lying on the stand, that's what happened. Burgess was convicted and Culliford walked out of the Admiralty a free man. As it played out, though, Burgess would not be executed. He was going to spend a couple of years in prison, but we're going to see him again down the road. Robert Culliford, on the other hand, disappeared from history. There are legends, of course, that Cutlass Culliford continued to terrorize the high seas, but I think it much more likely that he disappeared into a quiet life or died somewhere without anybody noticing. As for Adam Baldridge, the former merchant king of Madagascar, he was called in to testify and turn over all of his documents to the Admiralty. But he was never put on trial himself. Some hard questions were asked, but the prosecution never brought suit against him. Eventually, Baldridge returned to New York, where he was initially treated with disdain by Lord Bellamont, but then Bellamont died. Baldridge was able to set himself up as a relatively prosperous merchant. But that cache of documents that he handed over to the Admiralty included a letter that I would like to read for you. Quote, Captain Baldridge, I have been informed that my late husband, John Reed, died at Malagasar and left a considerable sum of money in your hands for myself and his children. This goes by my friend Mr. John Powell, whom I have empowered with a letter of attorney to receive what monies, or other things, my said late husband John Reed left in your, or any other person's custody, which I desire you to pay him, and doubt not but he will be very careful in bringing or sending it, that it may come safe to my hands. If there be anything, I hope you will be so kind as to pay it, for myself and my family are in a very poor condition, and in great want thereof. I have also sent a certificate by Mr. Powell that I was the true wife of John Reed. I take leave and rest, your humble servant, Anne Cantrell. End quote. Now we all know a pirate named John Reed, who at one point in his career sailed from Madagascar, don't we? that former shipmate and then the captain of William Dampier on board the Signet. Now, everyone says that that John Reed and this John Reed are not the same person. I would very much like to pretend that they were, but that's probably not the case. This is just some other pirate named John Reed. However, 
Let me read you what E.T. Fox says in Pirates in Their Own Words. He writes, quote, The letter from Anne Cantrell is interesting because of the genealogical possibilities that it and its accompanying documents raise. John Reed died, leaving his wife and two children, a son and a daughter, destitute. The name of the daughter, christened at the Bristol Church of St. Augustine the Less, was Mary. This Mary Reed, of whom no firm trace has been found after the date of this letter, was born around the right time to fit with the supposed life of Mary Reed, the notorious female pirate. The details of Mary Reed of Bristol coincide on multiple occasions with the early life of Mary Reed the pirate, as it is related by Charles Johnson. Both women were born to a seaman's wife, both lost their fathers at a young age, both had one brother. It would be delightful if Mary Reed the pirate was also the daughter of a pirate, but it is unlikely ever to be proven. End quote. Which is indeed an intriguing possibility about the parentage of Mary Reed. There's going to be another pirate named Reed in this story, though, so I wanted to clear that up first. But with that, we've tied up most of our loose ends. Of course, there are other pirates at Madagascar, St. Mary's in particular, who are going to enter our story in the days to come. But for now, Madagascar is relatively barren of pirates. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. If Libertalia were to survive, she would need fresh blood. It wasn't going to be long, though, before that new blood showed up. We've got a lot of pirates to introduce in the next couple of weeks, and all of this is going to serve as kind of a preview for what's to come at the end of the War of Spanish Succession. See, all of the pirates we're going to be talking about started as privateers during the Nine Years' War. They were operating mostly out of Providence, Rhode Island, and Jamaica, and they're going to form what will eventually become known in the public imagination as Libertalia. I want to begin talking about this group of pirates with a young man named Nathaniel North. Nathaniel North was born at Bermuda sometime around 1670. When he was 17, he joined the crew of a merchant trader as a cook's apprentice. 
Their first voyage took that ship to Barbados, where they found HMS Reserve. The Reserve was about 40 years old at this point, but still a powerful warship. She was on her way to join up with a fleet in the West Indies. Everybody was pretty sure that war was about to break out, so they were consolidating their forces. Captain of HMS Reserve, Dominic Nugent, pressed many of the boys into service, including Nathaniel North. At Jamaica, though, North jumped ship from the reserve, and he found work on board a sugar merchant that was leaving port that very day. It was a tough job, not very well paid, but he did it for about a year. But once the opportunity presented itself, once he was back in Kingston, Nathaniel North joined up with a privateer crew. Captain Charles Johnson writes in A General History of the Pirates, Volume 2, quote, The first voyage he made as a privateer, they took a couple of good prizes, which made every man's share very considerable. But North, as he had got his money lightly, so he spent it, making the companions of his dangers the companions of his diversions, or rather joining himself with them and following their example, which all who are acquainted with the way of life of a successful Jamaica privateer know is not an example of the greatest sobriety and economy. End quote. North continued to serve under a variety of privateers for a few years, mostly under a Captain Moses, though he did spend a cent on HMS assistance as he was once again pressed into service. But he didn't spend long on that ship either. When they returned to Jamaica, he jumped ship again, and met up with the crew of a privateer named Captain Lovering. Nathaniel North decided it sounded like a good opportunity, joined up, and went aboard the ten-gun Barcalonga Servilian. Lovering had a commission to sail for Newfoundland and hunt the French there. And here there are a few other crew members on board the Servilian that are worth introducing. The ship's master was Robert Colley. The gunner was named George Booth. The cooper was Joseph Wheeler. And the boatswain was Samuel Inless. For those of you who are familiar with the roundsmen of the early 18th century, that's a real Avengers Assemble kind of moment. If not... Those are all names worth remembering. The Servilians sailed up to Providence, Rhode Island, which was going to serve as kind of a home base for them. They checked in with the local authorities and began their first cruise. They took a French prize, a catch, that was carrying Spanish papers. And Spain was an ally of England in the Nine Years' War, so that should have made them off-limits. However... Captain Lovering discovered that those Spanish papers were falsified, so he brought the ship back to Newport, and this was a fairly impressive feat. See, there was a, a man-of-war sailing those same waters, a Royal Navy ship doing patrols that had checked that very same ship just a couple of days earlier, and they'd missed the telltale signs. It was a move that earned Lovering a lot of uh, prestige in Providence. On their second cruise, Servilian encountered an English-built ship flying French colors. Once again, we're going to quote Johnson, and I absolutely love this language. He writes, quote, 
This ship stood them a long argument. They clapped her on board, and two of their men entered her. End quote. When he says they stood a long argument, they mean a, a long-distance firefight for a couple of hours. When he says they clapped her on board, that means that they came up alongside, pulled the ship in close with grappling hooks, and then took the ship. In this case, the French surrendered. The ship that they won was an 18-gun, 800-ton, 75-man brigantine named Pelican. Originally, she was out of Bristol, but a few years earlier she'd been captured by the French. Those French were now put ashore, and the two ships, the Servilian and Pelican, continued their cruise. A couple of weeks later, Lovering spotted another brigantine. French of also about 18 guns. But the Pelican already flew the French flag, and she was also a known entity in these waters to other Frenchmen. So when he sailed the Pelican up to this French vessel, nobody contested him. They thought he was friendly. They had a man on board who spoke French fluently, and they exchanged pleasantries with the other vessel. That ship suggested that they sailed together for a while because, after all, there were Englishmen about. It was at that point, almost like it was a signal, that all of the pirates from Pelican jumped overboard onto the deck of this enemy ship. There wasn't even a chance here to fire pistols. The French rushed the invaders with sabers drawn, and it turned to close quarters fighting immediately, it was bloody and brutal and went on for fully 45 minutes. The men would retreat every once in a while, gather their forces, and then charge in again. Finally, the French were barricaded below decks, but they agreed to surrender. However, one man chose not to. He unbarred the doors, burst out, and rushed at the English with his saber drawn. He was slashing willy-nilly all around them and injured a few of the men, including... Captain Lovering, and Nathaniel North. This didn't last long, though everybody's pistols were still loaded, so about a dozen men drew and fired on him. Their little fleet was straining to sail at this point. They had added two brigantines to the number of men needed for a barcolonga, so they were bare bones everywhere. It was time to return to Providence. When they arrived, the privateers asked Governor of Rhode Island, Walter Clark, if they could have the Pelican. They'd done so well on their first two cruises, it shouldn't be a big deal, right? And Clark was always known to be fair with the uh, privateers in his colony. So he let them have it. However, that ship had been English, owned by merchants out of Bristol, and when they found out what had happened, they sued to have their property returned. It turned into quite the little legal kerfuffle, but it only got worse when Captain Lovering died. He succumbed to his injuries from that last battle. The crew of the Pelican decided they needed to hire some outside help, and turned to a man who was more than willing to help them named John Gardiner. And you may remember John Gardiner. He's the founder of the settlement on Gardiner's Island, and here in about two years' time, he's going to be paid a visit by William and Sarah Kidd, who have a heap of treasure to hide on his property. 
Before all of that, though, he did manage to secure the pelican for the crew which had won her. They still had to pay the owners a stipend, but it was way less than it would have otherwise cost. And they had the money to spare. Governor Clark agreed to renew their privateering commission. However, they would no longer sail off the coast of Newfoundland. They had orders to return to Jamaican waters. The crew accepted these new orders and sailed away. But a few days later, it became clear that a large number of the crew had stayed behind in Providence. And sailors are always staying and going whenever they feel like it in waterfront towns, but Providence wasn't very big, and this was enough that people took notice. So the governor inquired why so many of them had stayed behind. And they told him it was because Robert Colley had been elected captain. Which was natural enough, he was the ship's master before he was probably best suited to lead. So the governor asked, why, why does that mean you all wanted to stay? And they told him that Colley intended to, quote, cruise on the moors, not intending to pirate among the Europeans, but to rob what moors be in their way. End quote. The pelican was abandoning her orders and sailing for Madagascar. We're going to leave it there for today. Next time we're going to follow Nathaniel North, George Booth, and all the rest to their new home at Libertalia, and we're also going to introduce two new players, Thomas White and John Bowen. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody who helps to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who leaves us ratings or reviews, and everyone who recommends this show, you all make this possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The History of China, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music, as always, was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you'd like to check them out, you can find them on YouTube, Facebook, or Bandcamp. After you're done over there, you can check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight